Hello, everybody. This is Dr. Deanna Minnick. Welcome to the Color Can Heal Your Life podcast, where we explore how you can get some more color, creativity, and healing in your everyday life. We get to look at the spectrum of eating, living, feeling, and creating that you're all about. So let's dive into the inspiration and information rainbow that awaits us. Hi, everybody. This is Dr. Deanna. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Color Can Heal Your Life. And in this episode, uh, gosh, if you have any interest in heart health, this is the one to listen into. I'm interviewing my great friend and colleague, Dr. Mark Houston. And if you can only see the letters behind his name, I mean, gosh, he's done so much. He has been in the field for a long time, has um, many accomplishments. He's the Associate Clinical Professor of Medicine at Vanderbilt University Medical School. He's the director of the Hypertension Institute and Vascular Biology. He's the medical director of Division of Human Nutrition at St. Thomas Medical Group. And he's um, part of the St. Thomas Hospital in Nashville, Tennessee. So he is, um, the way I see Dr. Houston is, gosh, he's a wizard. He's a wizard of wisdom when it comes to cardiovascular health. And if you've ever seen him present, he he's just uh, <laughs> he's got so much in the way of pearls for clinicians as well as for patients. So what you're going to hear in this interview is uh, we're going to go rapid fire through a number of different food type questions. And I'm sure that I'm going to be covering many of the questions that you might have about cardiovascular conditions different ways to eat that are evidence-based. What do you do with certain things like fish or, you know, do you do you focus on omega-3s? What about eggs? We're going to cover a wide swath of information here. So I would say get a pen and paper <laughs> and be ready for the, the barrage of information to follow. And if you want to go a little bit deeper and access some of the free downloads that Dr. Houston has available, you can go to his website, which is Hypertension Institute. Here we go. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Color Can Heal Your Life podcast. In this episode, I have one of my cherished mentors, colleagues, and friends that's going to to join us. His name is Dr. Mark Houston. He's a cardiologist and uh, works very intensively in this whole area of um, integrative cardiology and is a prolific author. So, Dr. Houston, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Deanne. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. You know, um, as you know, uh, I did let you know that I uh, was going to ask you your favorite color. So before we get into the heart of the matter, I I do want to ask you about uh, your favorite color, which I'm sure we're all curious about. It's an easy one. It's always been my favorite. It's green. Green. You know what? That's so interesting because I associate green with the heart. Green, especially in ancient traditions, the heart is seen, you know, most people think of the heart as red, but actually um, it has this connotation with green. So, well, I didn't know. So I guess that was a natural connection, wasn't it? <laughs> definitely, definitely. And you have so much to offer in this whole area of cardiovascular health. Um, again, you've written so many different books. And at the end of our, our podcast, we'll leave the listeners with ways to, to find your books. So, Wonderful. Thank you. I'm kind of curious. Um, you know, I know you very well. We've known each other for years. But I'm kind of curious, how did you gravitate towards 
the heart? You know, what was your personal and professional journey? Like, how come you didn't go into neurology or gastroenterology or what made you focus more specifically on cardiovascular health? It actually started uh, during my internship and residency at the University of California in San Francisco, whereas I was exposed to some of the top cardiologists in the country. Kanu Chatterjee and, and, and the whole group at UCSF and the VA and San Francisco General. I mean, these were the, the brilliant people that wrote all the textbooks. And then I spent my entire summer at, at the end of my second year in medical school in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, with Emory, Jay Willits, Hurst, Crawford Long, uh, Grady Hospital. So I, this was a, a passion of mine that started literally in my probably my second year of, of training and in medical school. And then it did carry it over later on when they had offered hypertension boards, and then and later on they ordered a lot of other boards. So I started out in hypertension and then merged into cardiovascular medicine and then integrated everything in the mid-'90s after I got my nutrition boards. Just what you said right there, nutrition boards. Now, do you think that you were – kind of a, a novel um, presentation in med school, the fact that you were looking into other things and that you were connecting the dots in this way, that you were actually a physician who had some interest in nutrition. Right, and, and I, it, was a, it was an interest, but of course they didn't teach much of it in med school. Exactly. So you had to go out and learn it on your own. So I went back and got a master's degree in human nutrition from University of Bridgeport and they got a second master's from University of uh, Tampa in Florida on metabolic and nutritional and functional medicine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and especially because we know that there's such a connection between nutrition and cardiovascular disease, probably I would say more than any other chronic uh, disease or condition. It just seems like there's a plethora of literature in this area. It is, and it's expanding uh, so rapidly that I've had to become sort of a uh, stand-by-you cardiologist, uh, gastroenterologist now to be able to put all this together with my nutrition background. Mm-hmm. I, I'm kind of curious. When you see patients and, and you have a thriving clinic, you've been in clinical practice for a while, a long time. I mean, you teach practitioners, so you're, you're very seasoned. I'm kind of curious, what, what are some of the biggest questions that you get from patients? You know, are they still asking about the types of fats or do they have questions about sugar? You know, what are some of the hot buttons that you hear and get lots of uh, feedback from with your patients? Most of the patients, unfortunately, have been misinformed about nutrition and they, they get a lot of information from the Internet, which is not a great source. Um, and they, they still think eggs are bad for you, that they cause high cholesterol. They think that it's really the fats more than the carbohydrates that precipitate a lot of the uh, cholesterol issues. Uh, they don't really understand the different types of fats there are. They don't really understand the difference between a complex sugar and a refined sugar or starch. So you almost have to take every food group and just kind of break it down and say, this is what really helps you and this is what really hurts you. So how do you do that in a short office visit? Because what you just mentioned, those three areas of nutrition are pretty big by themselves. I mean, that's why I think that you've written all these books to communicate these concepts. But what's kind of your mantra? Do you have uh, certain things that you say to everybody so that they're all on the same playing field? Yeah, it's funny. I could probably write a a nutrition text in one paragraph and get all the meat there without all the foliage. Um, And so I started out with... 
the carbohydrate story, and I say if it's white, you cannot eat it except for cauliflower. And I explain what that is, you know, bread, pasta, white rice, sugars, and syrups, and sodas. Just get them out of your diet. If you do that, you'll lose a lot of weight and you'll be healthier. Secondly, I get rid of the trans fats, uh, put in a lot of omega-3s and a lot of olive oil and nuts, and eat really high-quality proteins that are preferably organic and go with a lot of cold water fish. Uh, and that's a real simple diet. Just get them started. Maybe do one thing at a time. Usually the carbohydrate story first, and they 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 follow, and it works beautifully. Hmm. You know, and it's so hard sometimes to overcome that low-fat mentality that was cultivated in the in the 1990s. And so, I know it's kind of a head-turning thing, uh, but it's good. I, I think what you what you just stated there is pretty clear-cut. Yeah, and the, the other problem is a lot of the. Uh, um, journal articles get replicated in the news media when there's stories that they think are sensational and they'll they'll say something that's totally wrong and so we we are always battling this as you know as nutritionists and and, and physicians uh particularly like the omega-3 story i mean you get this massive meta-analysis from one group that says they don't do anything and then another group that says they're the best things is mom and apple pie so you have to explain that to patients because they end up trying to listen to the news media and the Internet and they get bad information. Yeah, definitely. You know, if I look at the literature, and you and I are research hounds. We hang out on PubMed a lot, and we're looking at what comes out. When I was uh, just doing a survey for cardiovascular nutrition, what I found was the most well-studied diet is the Mediterranean diet. Is this what's your thought on the Mediterranean diet? Is this uh, something that Americans can do? Can most people do it? How would you even define it? Because I think that there are many different definitions. So, kind of curious to get your take on the Mediterranean diet. Yeah, I completely agree with you. The Mediterranean diet, the pretty med diet, is the best studied, has the best outcomes in, in everything. Um, and they've even got genomic data now that are pretty impressive. So if you look at risk for type 2 diabetes, risk for coronary heart disease, myocardial infarction, and even cancer, all these things are dramatically reduced by following the, the Mediterranean diet. Um, and, you know, you can break that down and tell people, we can go online and look at the pretty med data, give them a reference. We have that, and we have printouts we hand them as well. Or I can just say, look, here's what you really want to do. You want to do primarily a plant-based diet with, with some cold water fish, and eliminate all the, the starches that you can. Uh, and if you just do that one thing, that's pretty close to the, the true Mediterranean diet. But uh, the details of which here is in the handout. You can go read it. And then the Pretty Med has got, I mean, there's so many articles and uh, discussions about the clinical value, not just since it's cardiovascular disease, but everything else, that it is the top diet. The only diet that I would put up there close to the Mediterranean diet is the DASH-2 diet for hypertension. Uh, and it's actually very similar to the Mediterranean diet as far as the constituents. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things with the DASH diet, though, is low-fat dairy, which you can also translate over to the Mediterranean diet. There's some talk of uh, dairy products, usually fermented, and cheeses, aged cheeses, and things like that. Um so let me just do a recap. You, you said plant-based plus fish and no starches. I noticed that you didn't talk about meats. Um, what is your take on 
you know, grass-fed beef. I know that you get this question all the time, and this really relates to the article that we published in the Journal of the American College of Nutrition not too long ago. Um, but what is your take on meat in general? So when a patient says to you, I like my meat and potatoes, you know, I'm from the Midwest, and so I always hear, like, meat and potatoes. What do you say to that? Well, I'm obviously not anti-protein or anti-meat per se, but I'm against what's actually in some of the meats because it's the constituents and how whatever animal you're looking at is fed. Uh, because if you if you take the typical uh, beef model, for example, uh, you don't know what you're getting with pesticides and organicides and hormones and a lot of other things. So if you're going to talk about protein and meat products, you really have to talk about organic things. Um, and then, uh, I, and I don't want to push people too much into the protein story either. You've got to balance that with everything else because too much protein actually can, in some people, not all people, increase risk of some renal dysfunction. And also there's some data uh, by Dr. Longo, for example, that really high protein intake can actually shorten your life expectancy. So you want to get enough protein to keep your muscle mass up and do the things you need. And you can balance that with, you know, a certain amount of uh, grams per kilo depending on activity and age and that sort of thing. But I, I really don't like to take any sort of meat off the counter unless I know it's definitely organic. Uh, and I tend to go with more cold water fish, particularly salmon and mackerel and cod. And I really don't eat a lot of uh, red meat anymore. I don't eat uh, a lot of chicken or turkey unless I'm pretty sure the source is good. Yeah, I think you raise an excellent point about the source. In fact, um, you know, if you have the, the three macronutrients, carbohydrate, protein, and fat, it seems like there's been a lot of discussion around carbohydrate and fat that, you know, they've been maligned as as macronutrients and, and people have real polarized views on them. But protein seems to stay a little bit cushioned in the middle and people think that, oh, I can never get enough protein. But what you just mentioned there, and I've been seeing some articles on uh, where people People aren't digesting protein, it gets into the colon and you start getting the formation of all of these cancer-causing compounds, these amines. And so I'm glad that you mentioned that about renal dysfunction. And I would also start thinking about cancer, you know, moving forward yeah. with oncogenesis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Also, Dan, how you prepare that meat's important too. Yes. I mean, if mm-hmm. you take and put it on the grill and, and burn the heck out of it, you know, you're, you destroy everything yep. that you were trying to do with those you know, nitrites. That's an excellent point. Yeah. Um, so I like that, um, what, you, what you're saying here. Um, the other feature of the Mediterranean diet, and I was just at a conference where somebody was purporting olive oil as an extremely medicinal food agent, and we all should be having lots of olive oil. And, you know, I'm kind of curious because, you know, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And usually people, they try to look at the Mediterranean diet and say, what is the one thing? And I feel like people are coming out of it saying, oh, it's the olive oil. What is, what's your take on olive oil? You know, do you use a variety of oils? What do you recommend to your patients? Do you have certain favorite brands of olive oil? Just maybe wax on olive oil for a little bit for us. Okay. Well, first of all, olive oil is fantastic for cardiovascular disease microbiome, gut, and a lot of other diseases. Um, and it's, it's obviously not the only thing in the Mediterranean diet, but it's a, it's a big part of it. So when you look at the clinical trials of PrettyMed, extra virgin olive oil and mixed nuts were the two things that really had an additional benefit because of the content of all the polyphenols. And then you go look at the genomics of olive oil, which is incredible. It turns on all the good genes, turns off the bad genes, and it's all related to all those constituents that are in 
the extra virgin olive oil. So I push extra virgin olive oil uh, to anywhere from four to eight tablespoons a day, spread out on different types of foods. You can actually cook with olive oil. You just want to bring it to a steam, just keep it at low heat. Uh, and then also remember that um, some studies from Stan Hayes in the Cleveland Clinic have actually shown that if you consume extra virgin olive oil, you can actually turn off TMAO production in the gut, which is associated with the bad microbiome that increases atherosclerosis and CHD. So I, I, the best source, honestly, for me is the Southern California. There's, um, they have the strictest uh, requirements, even better probably than what we get from Spain and Italy. Um, so the La Jolla area of Southern California, that's where I get all my extra virgin olive oil and balsamic vinegar. You know, uh, thank you. That That's great. So four to eight tablespoons per day. Um, one of the brands that I heard is very good is one that's called Barani. It's an early harvest oil. And I guess the early harvest, when you take the unripe olives, they're higher in polyphenols than the the more ripe olives. I don't know if you've ever heard anything like that, but um, I have actually, I actually have some of that in my kitchen. Oh wow! And, uh, <laughs> that's a good point, is because when you get the early, early produce, it actually is much better uh, for the polyphenols. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Good. Uh, any other oils that you like and that you recommend? Do you talk about maybe avocado oil? Do you ever talk about butter? I heard a lot about butyrate lately about increasing tight junction proteins. I don't know what your take is on all the different types of fats. I mean, it seems like olive oil is up at the top of the pyramid. Are there other ones that you say, let's bring some of these in as well, like coconut? I mean, what do you think about coconut oil? There's a yeah, lot of so controversy. Yeah, that's a very great question. So my top two oils are omega-3s and, uh, and monounsaturated fats, which are olive oils, uh, nuts, and then you get your omega-3s either as a supplement or through algae or through cold water fish. So those are the tops. Uh, the coconut oil story is really interesting. It's mostly a saturated fat, this long-chain fatty acid, C12 and higher. And if, if you go and look at the data, to be honest about it, you really can't find anything related to cardiovascular disease with, with coconut oil that's beneficial. Now, you can find maybe some things related to the brain, but that's a different story. Uh, so I don't I don't push coconut oil. You know, it's it's okay if you want to use it, but don't don't get over using that and, and push it to the high limits compared to the other oils. Um, and then I, I typically, as I said, I cook with um, don't steam things. Keep it a low heat. I cook with olive oil, so that's okay. Uh, as far as other fats, I use real butter that's got omega threes in it. Um, I don't use any of the hydrogenated fats or any of the fake butters. I think uh, if you're going to do butter, you probably do the real thing. If you're going to do milk, not that I'm pushing milk, but if you do milk, you're probably better off doing whole milk. And then if you're going to do fermented milk, kefir is one of the top ones with cardiovascular disease and everything else you can think of. Mm. You saying kefir makes me think of the gut microbiome, which um, I just saw an article published not too long ago. I need to send this article to you, but it basically showed that gut microbiome diversity was correlated with arterial stiffness. So the more diversity you had in the gut, the less you had in the way of arterial stiffness. So there's a lot of talk about the gut being the interface for so many different organs. And I think that we have seen talk about the heart and the gut. But what are some things that you feel like many people probably aren't aware of, or do you focus on fermented products? Do you really get gut health in order for your cardiovascular disease patients? 
yeah, you've got to get your gut cleaned up. Otherwise, you'll, you'll be chasing your tail forever with cardiovascular disease because the gut CV connection is enormous for not just hypertension, stiff arteries, diabetes, coronary heart disease, congestive heart failure, stroke. I mean, you name it, it's, it's a connection. And so you want to get the microbiome healthy. So you, the plant-based diet is the best way to get your microbiome healthy. It's a, it's a tremendous shift that occurs very quickly. Um, and fermented foods do that just as well. In fact, there's a study that just came out this week from the journal Nutrition on kefir that shows it lowers blood pressure through the mechanism you just said through the microbiome and causing endothelial function to improve with arterial stiffness getting less prominent. So we're going to see a lot more about fermented foods as well and fiber. You've got to get a lot of fiber in to change the colonic uh, flora as well. Do you recommend probiotics for your cardiovascular disease patients? I do. Uh, I'll start them on a probiotic and, and, and all the other things we just mentioned, kind of get their gut really cleaned up. And then once we have them looking better, we test all this, by the way, pre and post microbiome stool testing. And then I'll add some prebiotics in there as well once we get everything kind of going to feed those good bacteria. You know, it's so interesting. I'm just kind of stepping back for a second, kind of zooming out, and it's fascinating that uh, you working in the cardiovascular area, that it's almost, you know, this beautiful overlap into gastroenterology that we have to see the body as a web. And uh, I just love the fact that you focus on gut health with your patients because I don't think that that's traditional, especially when, you know, you look at all these other uh, internists and, and, and heart docs that just focus on you know, different devices, technologies, and lipids in the blood. They're not even talking about fermented foods with their patients. You're, you're very unique. Well, thank you for saying that, but you're, you're right. The problem is uh, you, they're, they're looking at trees and not the forest here. And, uh, you know, you can talk about all the things you want to that are traditional, like, well, let's get your cholesterol down, and let's get your triglycerides down, and so forth. But that's, that's just a tiny piece of what the gut's doing related to your cardiovascular health. Uh, so that if you don't if you don't put that in there, you're never going to get cardiovascular risk down. Yeah, it, it's so true. Thanks for mentioning that. Um, it's part of thinking about fiber that's triggering me now to think a little bit more about carbohydrate because I think that, like you said, most people don't realize that there's a difference between complex and refined sugars or carbohydrate. And uh, I'm sure that you look at triglycerides as a huge. Um, factor of disease and disease risk. So with increased carbohydrate, we see increased triglycerides. You know, how do you, um, gosh, in all the studies on sugar-sweetened beverages and hypertension, I mean, talk with us about sugar. Right now, I just, I'll tell you this personally, I came back from this conference and I, I put myself on an absolutely like no added sugar diet at all. Like I just want to be completely free. And I can't even tell you how balanced, how I just feel like I can focus better. I mean, it's not that I ever did a lot of sugar, but really taking it out just has changed how I feel. So I'm, I'm just curious if you can talk a bit about carbohydrates and sweeteners and soft drinks, you know, anything you want to talk about with carbohydrate, because I think it's a huge issue for cardiovascular disease. Yeah. So let's take the, the enemy, which is the refined carbohydrates. Um, so, uh, you know, straight sugars, which are in, some of this is in fruit in the form of fructose, 
and it's in you know, white sugar. It's in a lot of things you eat and you don't even know it's got their sugar in it. For example, a lot of the cereals, milk, I mean, these are full of sugar. So you've got to look at the number of grams per day of refined sugars that you're getting in your diet. I try to keep it below 50 grams a day in most people. Now, if they're type 2 diabetic, I may drop it in even lower than that, maybe down to 30. And when you do that, you create an anti-inflammatory diet. Arthritis gets better, brain function, mental focus, everything gets improved, their energy level goes up, and it's very dramatic. Within a week of getting off those sugars, they get better. Uh, the other the other bad thing, which you know about because you've been talking about this for years, is the artificial sweeteners, oh, which yeah. uh, actually make people fatter and increase the risk for type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease. And all of them do this. Um, with the exception of, you know, maybe some other really natural ones, but all the ones that are on the market that are, quote, FDA-approved need to be taken off the market because they're actually uh, causing people's health to deteriorate. Um, if I use anything that's a sweetener, uh, it may be just a little bit of raw honey from the area you live in because that can be very important to your health. But I don't typically sweeten much of anything. Uh, there's another great sweetener, D-ribose, which is, uh, actually can lower blood sugar. And it's, it's, a, it's a mild sweetener, but it's also very good. Um, the fructose story is interesting, and you and I have actually yeah. written on this together. Uh, and, you know, the fructose that comes in natural foods, uh, if you don't overdo it, Maybe it's not so bad, but when you start getting into high fructose corn syrup, which is everything you can imagine, and you overdo it, that will really raise your triglycerides and cause cardiovascular disease, risk for thrombosis, coronary heart disease, MIs, and strokes. So you've got to be very careful with the fructose story as well. Oh, and, and then, of course, the other side of the coin is the complex carbs, which you, you want to have those. That's, that's your vegetables primarily. And uh, as you always say, get a nice color rainbow array <laughs> of those vegetables. Wow. You know, just listening to you, I'm taking some notes here. We are so on the same page. I like what you said about raw honey, about D-ribose. You know, oftentimes I don't even like the super intense sweeteners like stevia or, you know, I know that they're oh, I not... Can't <laughs> I can't use stevia. It's just too strong for me. I, I don't strong, like yeah. the taste. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think it just keeps cravings going because it's still pretty intense. And not everybody has the uh, affinity for it. Some people just don't like it, and they can detect it in a product right away. Yeah. Um, the other thing, Deanna, for our listeners, I know you know this, but the two things that have come out recently about the artificial sweeteners, they, mm-hmm. they turn off the satiety center in your brain so you keep eating, and they also adjust the microbiome to a very unhealthy setting. So those are the two reasons probably they're contributing to the diseases we talked about. Bingo. Exactly. And I have seen uh, a number of papers on changing the gut microbiome through changing pH. And, you know, these things are kind of wonky. They don't get absorbed in the same way. The body sees them as foreign, so they travel a little bit longer through the gut. They don't always get absorbed like other nutrients because they're, they're synth- well, they're synthetic. They're synthesized. So um, I want to just go back to what you said about fruit, because I recently heard somebody say that um, eating fruit is like eating candy. And I feel like there is a lot of mixed message uh, in the media around fruits and just our take on fruits. And, you know, there's like 
good guys, bad guys. I, you know, people love them, people hate them. Uh, I'm just, you know, when it comes to, I was listening carefully to what you said, and you said uh, having natural fruits within a certain amount um, can be okay. But do you feel like people can push the bar too much on certain fruits, or is it about the type of fruit? Is it about what they're eating it with? Is it about the quantity? Maybe some guidelines around fruit consumption and cardiovascular issues. Yeah, yeah, it's about everything you just said. So let's talk about the amount of fruit. Uh, I, I recommend if people will do it, 12 servings of fruits and vegetables per day, but it's eight servings of vegetables and four servings of fruit. That's in a general population. If they're a type 2 diabetic or they got insulin resistance, then it may be more limited. So that's the quantity. Um, and the servings, you know, is kind of what you get in the palm of your hand. Uh, as far as the types of fruit go, I, I tend to end, go towards more of the berries, blackberries, strawberries, blueberries, raspberries. Um, stay a little bit away from the really high glycemic fruits like bananas, for example. And you can get a list on these online to tell you which ones are high glycemic. So eat the lower glycemic fruits and keep them within the amount per day that we just talked about. Um, as far as um, when you eat them and what you eat them with, there probably is some importance to that. If you just sit there and eat fruit, uh, and you don't eat anything else with it, you're going to have a different response than if you're eating the fruit with a meal. Um, and because the, the change in not only fructose levels, but also glucose levels, depending on your body composition, your obesity, and your uh, insulin resistance, that response is going to be extremely variable. And so you can't always make a big statement that this is what you have to do that's going to work for everybody because as you know the personalized nutrition is really what's going to be the way we're going to be treating people in the future and those genomic responses and their phenotype and genotype are very important in that outcome. I'm so glad that you brought up that point. I was saving that for the last because I feel like it's a more complicated topic. But you're one of the the pioneers in this area for cardiovascular health. You've been instrumental in doing this within your clinical practice. You've created diagnostics around genomics. Talk with us, you know, methylation is a big one. People think, again, that everything is so connected to methylation, but then there's the epigenome. I mean, I, I feel like it's much wider than that. How do you see us in the present day connecting into personalized health regimens, and what do you foresee in the future happening? Well, we have the ability almost right now to uh, determine response of every patient based on their epigenetics or genetics and a few other things I'll talk about momentarily uh, and what's going to happen when they consume certain food groups and types of food or even amounts. Uh, one of the hidden things, which I'm sure you're aware of, is the, the absolutely blowing issue of microRNA that's coming out. Uh, this is like the volcano that hasn't erupted yet. Uh, we've always thought about DNA and messenger RNA and trans transformants and all this, but the new the new story is the subliminal massive amounts of uh, microRNA that are contributing to everything related to cardiovascular health and other types of diseases in general. So we'll be able to, I think, eventually map the personalized or precision response of every patient to a specific type of nutrition program. Wow. Are you doing this in your clinic right now where you look at somebody's genetics, you look at their SNPs, and then you figure out a plan? Right now we're doing the cardiovascular genomics routinely. And uh, from that, it can push me into a very good 
designed for their blood pressure, their cholesterol, uh, and their type 2 diabetes. But we're not that sophisticated yet to be able to say, well, this particular food group you shouldn't do. Uh, we're not that good yet. But I think eventually uh, we'll ha- have the ability to do that. Mm-hmm. And currently with cardiovascular genomics, uh, can you just list out for us some of the, the basic SNPs? Like, are you looking at MTHFR? Are you looking at PI-1? Are there certain ones that are must-haves for you in clinical practice? Yeah, what I did, um, I went through all the cardiovascular SNPs that have been reported to have any relationship. And then I picked out the ones that you could actually do something about, either with nutrition, a drug, or a supplement, and developed a, a, a CV SNP program through one of the, the companies. And I don't know if you want to mention it or not. But sure, go ahead. Yeah, you can. Uh, yeah, it's, it, it, it's Vibrant America out of San Francisco. So if you, if you go to Vibrant America or call them, there's a cardiovascular genomic profile. I think it's about 25 SNPs on there that relate to hypertension, cardiovascular disease, coronary heart disease, stroke, diabetes type 2, and dyslipidemia. And from that, you will be able to design a prevention program that's much better uh, because you can then say, well, this particular SNP has been associated with improvement with Mediterranean diet, or this SNP is improved by doing a low-carbohydrate diet, or you can say that this supplement, coenzyme Q10, has been shown to make this SNP work better. So it's very valuable, and also you can use uh, the same SNPs for drug uh, interactions for like resistant hypertension and resistant dyslipidemia. So it's a very good clinical tool. You only have to do it one time, and it will change your practice because instead of guessing at all these things that that people come in with say, well, you've had this for years, no one can figure it out. Well, I just found a SNP that will figure it out. I'm going to put you on this, and they come back in six or eight weeks, and whatever they had wrong with them is gone and it's fixed, and you're their hero. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It can figure a lot out. I mean, probably from that, you can even say things like about coffee or alcohol. You can get into the ditch a little bit more and give people a little bit more specific guidance uh, based yeah, on absolutely. what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, the cytochrome P for 51A2, which is mm-hmm. a, the caffeine gene. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we do the methylation genes and we do the ApoE4. Those, those, those are ones that, you know, people know about, but the, the ones we're doing, the rest of those SNPs, people have never even heard of, and, and but they are absolutely key because they have a direct connection between the genomics and a treatment that works. Wow. So, uh, and again, the fact that you created this panel is just fabulous. I mean, you just know so much about the literature and, uh, you know, it's great that this is evidence-based. You know, we're tracking with the science. Dr. Houston, uh, as we near the end of this, uh, I'm going to shift gears a little bit and maybe throw you a curveball because you know me, I'm a bit of a science and spirituality kind of a person. And we've been really heady <laughs> for, for most of the, the, the podcast here. And, um, you know, the fact that you work in the medicine of the heart, to me, tells me that you probably deal with a lot of other types of issues, or at least you probably have seen patterns with people that when they come in, you know, we hear that phrase, having a broken heart, having grief. Um, you know, I think about the research even on compassion, forgiveness, optimism, laughter. I mean, there's actually pretty good data on a number of these things and how they affect our hearts. So, I'm just wondering, can you wax on uh, this whole idea of that there's more to the heart than just nutrition? You know, what what is your take on all the other things 
relating to our emotional well-being and our lifestyle? Well, you're, you're absolutely dead on with this, Deanna. The, the relationship of the mind, body, and all those emotions and depression and anxiety and sympathetic, parasympathetic nervous system, all this relates to the, the control of, I would just say, simply the electrical system of the heart, which can also translate into other things, but like heart rate variability, uh, heart rate recovery time. Uh, over-sympathetic uh, drive, which increases cardiovascular risk with arrhythmias, left ventricular hypertrophy, hypertension, uh, coronary artery vasospasm, uh, precipitates uh, high levels of cortisol and angiotensin II, which increase plaque formation, increase plaque rupture, increase the risk of myocardial infarction. So this is a huge issue. And you, you have to address the mind-body heart connection, just like you have to address the gut cardiovascular connection. Because if you don't, those people are not going to do well. So the people who are dreadful and pessimistic and depressed and anxious and have abnormal autonomic function and heart rate variability, heart rate recovery time, and all those sort of things, even a fast heart rate at rest or that doesn't recover after exercise, they're at increased risk for cardiovascular disease. But those who are optimistic and hopeful and get plenty of sleep and they meditate and they rest, they have a much better outcome than the other group. Mm, I really like that. It, it resonates with me and just with the people that I've seen. Um, and it probably just, uh, you know, you look at different practices throughout the world and the blue zones and why people live so long as they do. Um, I, I just think that having some kind of spiritual framework and some hope, having faith in something, um, having a community, all of these aspects are, are so important. So thanks for mentioning you're, that. You're, yeah, exactly. Well, I actually have a section, and I think most most functional medicine doctors do as well, in their initial uh, handout for questions on a spiritual section to, to delve into all that so you can see where the people are when they come in and, and ask them more questions if you need to. Yeah, yeah, fabulous. And it's great that you address that with your patients, too, and that um, just knowing a little bit more about you, I know that uh, you're very well-rounded in your scope of how you look at, at health in this way. Dr. Houston, this has been fabulous. I mean, gosh, this is just chop, chop. We've just gone through so many different things, and I've been taking so many notes. I've got bullet points galore on this paper next to me. Um, you have so much to offer, and I want to give you uh, the stage to to talk about your books, talk about what you've got out there, because you are so prolific, and uh, you've written a lot. So how do people find out more about you and your books? Yeah, so the, the best way probably most people have access to Amazon. If you just put in my full name on Amazon, it'll pop up all the books that I've written. And we have books for lay people, what your doctor may not tell you about hypertension, uh, what your doctor may not tell you about heart disease. Uh, and then um, we just finished a textbook uh, for practitioners on nutritional strategies and cardiovascular disease that I edited with Dr. Stephen Sinatra. And the most exciting one, which is coming out, and you are one of our fabulous invited co-authors in this new cardiovascular textbook, it'll be one of the first CV textbooks truly that addresses integrative and nutritional cardiovascular medicine in a way that's never been done before. Uh, it's it's going to be published by Walters Kluwer. It's a huge publishing company worldwide. And I'll be editing that with some of the top uh, cardiovascular specialists, nutritionists, in the world, 
And that book is in the process of being uh, uh, finalized right now with all the authors and topics, and we hope that that will be out in uh, late fall 2019 if everything goes to schedule. Great. And how would people find that book since it's more of a, uh, a textbook and a professional book? Uh, it should also come out on Amazon. Oh, most, okay. mo- yeah, most of our, our even our uh, professional textbooks will come out on Amazon. But uh, we'll we'll obviously publicize it very heavily once it's out and, and hit all the different journals and emails for people. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for spending the time with us today. Uh, just great to tap into your vast wisdom and knowledge uh, about the heart. So thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Oh, thank you. You, you as well. Thanks for much having me, Dan.